Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Simon Fanshaw, OBE, a diversity consultant, broadcaster, and author. He is the co-founder of Diversity by Design, which supports organizations to truly diversify their senior people. His latest book, The Power of Difference, where the complexities of diversity and inclusion meet practical solutions, will be published in 2021 by Kogan Page. Diversity by Design is currently running a significant trial in the NHS of Recruiting for Difference, the process developed to design out the bias in hiring and promotion. He is currently on the board of Powerful Women, and he is chairman of Hexagon Housing Association. He was chairman of Sussex University 2007 to 2013. He was a non-exec director of Housing and Care 21, a governor of the Museum of London, and he was on the board of Brighton Dome and Festival. Fanshawe was the co-founder of Stonewall and the Kaleidoscope Trust. He was awarded the OBE in 2013 for services to higher ed and made an honorary doctor of the University of Sussex for services to diversity and human rights. I welcome Simon Fanshawe to Savage Minds. Can you talk to us a bit about your involvement in Stonewall, some of the more historic reasons why you got involved to build an organization at the height of the AIDS crisis and that fought for the rights of gay and lesbians, irrespective of all these other names that we see floating about today that we can use to describe ourselves. In the 80s, gay, lesbian meant something. It somewhat still does today. What prompted you to work together with others to build Stonewall? A couple of comments on, on those things. I should say from the start, I don't think there's a particular problem in and of itself that Stonewall campaigns or works with trans people to support them to campaign for equality. I don't think that's a particular problem. I think it's a strategic choice. And I think the issue for me is that is, is the way in which they have gone about it. And one of the things that did happen, and I'll, I'll get back to the original question, but, but just to say one of the things that did happen during the 80s and then the 90s with Stonewall was that a number of groups, there was the, um, there was Rank Outsiders, which was campaigning to end the ban in the military. Um, there was a group around adoption and fostering, and so on. There's a group around immigration rules. Um, and each of these groups wanted to campaign on something very particular of interest to them. And uh, so what Stonewall did was to support them, office space, resources or whatever, to find their own voice. And I think that's one of the things that, and I'm, look, I'm an old community worker, you know, and I think that's what you do when people say we want to do, you know, you support them to find their voice. And what that would have meant would have been supporting them to embrace the range of trans voices in this discussion so that, you know, people who actually, who are trans, who can't find a voice in Stonewall because Stonewall excludes them would actually have had an opportunity to, talk to other people and, and, and find a common platform. Um, because that's what we did. I mean, what happened, if you think, uh, those of you not familiar with the 80s uh, in Britain, if, if we think back, I mean, there's an arc really that, that starts in 1967. And this is the decriminalization of homosexuality. The significance of it was this, was that actually it meant that you could be visible legally. And that's the only thing we've really got is visibility. 
that is our political tool. And so what sprung up around that, and I remember doing a documentary some years back called uh, The Trouble With Gay Men. And there was, it was a series of trouble with black men, trouble with old people, trouble with young people, trouble with gay men. And there's a lovely man called Simon Watney who started Gay Liberation Front at Sussex University in 19, oh, I should think about 34, no, about 70 something, you know. Um, and he made the point to me, and I'd never really joined the dots on this before, but he said, you know, what happened after the 67 Act was that these social networks emerged. So you, you could ramble and you could yacht and you could sew and you could read with other gay people, you know, and lesbian people. So at the beginning of the 80s, when AIDS struck, and the first person in Britain died of AIDS, I think in 1981, those social networks were the foundation of our response to AIDS, which was incredibly mature, if you think about it, the money that was raised, extraordinary expertise that was gathered, medical expertise and, and, and the ability to pressure um, governments and the NHS in this question, in this case, to take it seriously. And thirdly, the buddying network. So that happened at the beginning of the, of the 90s. The stigma uh, that AIDS brought to, well, gay men mainly, but the, the gays, you know, lesbians and gays, um, that was a real feature of the 1980s. And I think many of us not only lived in some kind of personal fear, but actually the newspapers and the and, and or certain elements of the newspapers and certain correspondents used AIDS as again a way of trying to describe homosexuality as quintessentially uh, immoral and so on and so forth. So then what happens at the end of the 80s, some right-wing MPs in the House of Commons started this thing called Section 28, which was designed to prohibit the, quote, promotion of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship, close quote. The point about this, I've always thought, was that actually we weren't, we weren't, we were the focus, we were the weapon, we weren't the, we, we weren't the point, though. We were a handy stick to beat what was then called the loony left authorities. This was a, this was a, a right-wing conservative attempt to knock back mainly the London boroughs who picked up lesbian and gay issues as, a, as an important um, uh, uh, thing for them to do for lesbian and gay citizens in the boroughs. So we were a handy tool, which we often are. I mean, we're a dog whistle. You know, if you want to look liberal and you're on the right, you say you'd be nice to the gays. And if you want to rally your core constituency on the right, you're nasty to the gays. And similarly on the left, you know, um, if you want to look good and liberal, you embrace everything to do with the gays and now to do with the trans people. So, so I, I'm telling you that story because Stonewall was a response in that context to the fact that when Section 28 was, was used against us, we didn't have the tools to lobby Parliament to stop it happening. It was the bit of the armoury in gay campaigning that was missing. So that's why we started it, very explicitly to knock back the unequal laws that were on, on the statute book. So that's why we started it. And, we, and, and the way we built the broad alliance really was based in the campaign against Section 28, which was that instead of saying, you know, homosexuality is great, gay is good, da, 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 what we said was, actually, if you let this law go by, it means that you're infringing on freedom of speech, that you won't allow the mention of homosexuals like Leonardo da Vinci or, or, or you know, whoever in schools. Are you really saying that schools are not going to teach Oscar Wilde? They got, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we built a broad alliance over that idea that actually they were discriminating against a group of people and the effect of that was an effect on everybody and everybody's free speech. You mentioned that 
in acting in solidarity that organizations would lend a hand then like Stonewall to the trans advocates at the time. But there were many questions raised for those of us. I was in New York at the time. I had just come back from Europe and saw the tea added to a lot of the local gay and lesbian organizations that I had been involved with even. And I did ask, what's the tea? That was my first word out of my mouth when I saw it. I was like, what's that? Mm -hmm. And people said, oh, transgender. And I said, okay, but what does that have to do with sexuality? Early on, I noticed that there was nothing to do with one and the other simply because I had friends who were even drag queens, transvestites in the day called this. Today, many still do use these terms like Jane County, who was accused of being transphobic for using the word transvestite. There are questions around this for many of us in the gay and lesbian community. What does having an intrinsic, what they argue, gender identity have to do with sexuality? So obviously that came to many people's doorsteps and they accepted it as did I at the time thinking, ah, no harm, no foul. But here we are years later, you just mentioned Oscar Wilde. I'm sure you know that the trans lobby has attempted to historically transgender many people. Usually they're the women. The women are the ones getting the brunt of it. They were really men. When we know historically, even as late as the 20th century, people like Frida Kahlo had to dress as men to go to the university. But no, let's rewrite history and pretend that women were just men. And this has been going on. I wrote a piece for Quillette about this, Transing the Dead. Lesbians historically have taken the toll in this transgendering. Meanwhile, one of the first people I met when I moved to New York in January 1988 was Marsha P. Johnson. And he was, he was going around saying he was a gay man. He never claimed to be a woman. What has gone on that the gay and lesbian organizations, previous gay and lesbian organizations, have not only given the trans organizations or trans organizers office space to taking that on as something that is intrinsic to all of us, where I don't see transgender having to do with any of me because as a female, I've had to fight against gender my whole life. And as a gay woman, I've had to fight against homophobia and gender my whole life, as have, as have many gay men, by the way, who are told that they're just effeminate girls born in the wrong body. I think I, 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 I struggle a bit with what the relationship is between sexual orientation, being lesbian and gay, and having a gender identity, being trans. I think that the, 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 one of the problems is that the trans rights organizers or activists or whatever, some of them, it's been a Trojan horse for gender ideology. And I think there's a real difference. You notice it in the range of trans voices if you listen to them now, is there's a range of voices who are actually simply want certain specific rights to be enshrined in law, which largely they are in the GRA and the Gender Recognition Act and so on and so forth, which enables people to take advantage of the legal fiction. So a man can transition and get a gender recognition certificate and then be treated for all purposes in the law as a woman. And then of course comes under, uh, there are certain exceptions in the Equality Act, which enables same uh, single sex spaces to, 
to be maintained. So I think there's a kind of rights group of people who want something very similar to what we started in Stonewall. We were looking simply for legal equality and, and, and that was it. But that became a Trojan horse, I think, for this whole other ideology, queer theory, call it what you will, gender ideology. And that is this peculiar notion, which is that we have a kind of a sort of essential gender identity. One of the things I find confusing about this is that I'm told by those people that everybody has one. And yet, and by the way, not only does everybody have one, but it's theirs to determine and they know about it and they are the ultimate gatekeeper and validator of it. But then if I say I don't have one, they say, well, yes, you do. I say, no, no, no. You told me that my gender identity is to be determined by me. It's my self-determination and I know whether I have it. Well, I don't have one. So there seems to be a terrible contradiction in this. But this, this, the, but, well, the point I would want to make is that I think that queer theory, and I can't bear that word, but queer theory and all that stuff, that came in under what was actually a, a simple rights campaign to enable a certain rather small group of people to live free and happy lives without discrimination. So it was almost sort of, you know, smuggled in. And then what happened was that I think that, and particularly I think universities are responsible for this, is that it gained a sort of academic credence, an extraordinary academic credence. And I think that's a symptom of something much, much bigger. I think there's a much bigger question going on uh, around politics at the moment, which is the triumph of the subjective, the idea that personal experience is unchallengeable as a political statement. And the confusion with LGBT blah, 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 comes that uh, actually what people are doing is they're confusing personal identity, which is about social presentation, you can call yourself what you like, you can dress what you like, you can do all those things. They're confusing that with actually the very basic political salience of sexual orientation. When you get hit in the face, it's because you're a puff or a leather. It's not because you're an aromantic, demi, blah, blah, whatever. It's very simple, actually, in political terms. And the rights issue is simple in political terms. It's about a group of people who did not have had rights taken away from them because they were members of that group of people. Whereas once you start to add all these other letters, what you're doing is you're straying into an idea that somehow personal identity is the political identity. So the old thing about the personal being political has been turned on its head. So now the political's become entirely personal. And I think it's been sort of washed through therapy, through these various critical theories, and it's very destructive because it leads to what you're talking about, which is um, it, it's a sort of ahistorical and untruthful interpretation of what's really going on in the political world. It's shocking to me to see people say that the transgender members of the West Village were the primary actors of Stonewall. Totally not true. One of the journalists who reported on that event, still alive today, has written recently about that as well, saying, you know, I was there, this was not a transgender revolution at all. And there are problems with the way we use these words anachronistically. There are historians in universities in the UK and the US who make their living publishing articles, peer reviewed bizarrely, stating that trans has always been. And these are real problems for me because I have studied and taught queer theory. 
And I remember how queer theory jumped the shark, as it were, because in the early days, in the late 80s and early 90s, it was about visibility of gay and, and lesbian voices and bodies and artworks and sexuality. It was about being able to discuss this. Now, why the word queer was used, a lot of people need to remember, queer used to be a way of saying gay that was supposed to be an insult. And this was sort of what happened in the rap movement in the United States as well in the 1980s when rappers would take the N-word and turn it on its head and say, well, you're not going to use it against us. We're going to use it. And they co-opted it. They recycled it as a way of saying, you don't own us. And that's similar to what happened with the queer movement, at least in places like New York and San Francisco at the time. We're not going to be called queer. We will queer ourselves. Thank you very much. So it was a sort of, you don't fire me, I quit type of reaction <laughs> to the word. Okay, fair enough. When it started to become in current use in the early 90s in New York, a few times I said, uh, when people would say, are you queer? I was like, mm. I'm gay. I'm in America, a lot of women will say gay instead of lesbian, but whatever. And then I sort of used it a little bit, but I felt a little weird about using it because I'm like, is this like what my friend, uh, while I was doing my doctorate, one of my colleagues called it queer face, where everyone who was queer was somehow a gay, uh, sorry, a straight woman who had a one-nighter. So queer became sort of this straight to bed you know, way of both accepting otherness as it were, but also for straight people to feel included in the very groups that were marginalized. So it's a bit of a paradox that somehow everyone in the mid nineties, late nineties was oppressed. Now we saw this and they weren't calling themselves oppressed per se, but by identifying as queer, it allowed everyone to sort of have a foot in the, the gay halls of shame, right? So I, <laughs> I saw that and I sort of let it go because I was involved in my work and life. And as you probably know, the early days of coming out, you go to the Pride Festival, you go to the parades, and the first time it's funny or fun, but it becomes tiring really quickly. All my <laughs> friends who had been out and proud for years were like, we don't go to Pride, that's embarrassing. And this was 1988, 1989. And Pride was sort of about young gay people coming out. And it was full of floats. You'd see every Broadway show on a float. You'd see local radio stations on a float. Little by little over the years, it was more airlines and then mom and pop restaurants. And they weren't gay, but they were somehow on a float. And you saw more and more of this. I remember just a couple of years ago, I was at the Brighton Pride and you had major airlines. It was it was more like a billboard of what you should buy rather than anything to do with gayness. But okay. Well, I think there are a couple of things there, aren't there? One is that I'm actually fine with those that you, that, you know the the, the 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 lorries and the trucks and the stalls and all that. I think that's great on one level, as long as those organisations don't think that's enough. You know, there's a kind of well, we did pride, and that was a you know that was our diversity thing for the for the for the year. And I think it is virtue signaling. I don't think there's any problem with virtue signaling, just that if you only virtue signal, it doesn't change the numbers and it doesn't change the, uh, anybody's lives. It starts a conversation. So I don't mind it being that. And I also think that, you know, lots of people work in these companies and they feel enfranchised. They, they like it. They feel that actually they're being visible in the company. So I don't mind it particularly as a commercial thing. And I think it's commercial reality too. That I mean, I know the person who runs Pride in Brighton. 
And the truth of it is you have to get the sponsorship in in order to enable the whole festival to start. So I don't really mind it, but what I do mind, which is what you're, which you're, you're hinting at, I think, is that A, that actually there's something about the idea of being gay as an individual expression of individual, in, uh, of individual identity in the market, that somehow this thing is not linked to, that gay campaigning and so on is not linked ultimately to a bigger question of change within society. That essentially it's an individual celebration. It's a rather narcissistic celebration of individual identity. And you can see it. I mean, Stonewall in, in the UK's latest slogan is called free to be. Well, I mean, that's such a meaningless idea as if, you know, and, and, and in Pink Paper the other day, ghastly rag, Pink Paper wrote a thing saying, because uh, I had said freedom is a ludicrous slogan, because actually freedom's not an individual question. The point about freedom is it's about how we can achieve the maximum freedom for all of us to live harmoniously with each other. So essentially freedom's about negotiation, you know. And if you just think it's about individual choice and doing, and they in this article they said, well, if you look at the dictionary, it says freedom freedom is about doing what you want. Well, what a ludicrous notion. The idea that actually society benefits from people just doing what they want. Whereas actually the point about those early campaigns was that they were trying to change the world so that everybody had a better world. I always used to say with Stonewall that it wasn't just about writing wrong. It was about providing a platform for lesbians and gays to make a contribution to a country which everybody could live in freely. So these notes, I think one of the dangers of this is that, and you see it across identity politics, it's been washed through therapy, it's been washed through consumerism, and it's ended up being highly individualistic. And so this idea that you can, you know, there's, there's the material reality of having a sexual orientation, which is about same-sex attraction that puts you at odds with the law or at odds with your social circumstances such that you get discriminated against. And then there's this other thing, which is all about personal identity, which means that you can bend the language and bend the world by simply announcing that you're gay, uh, that you're queer, or announcing that you're, you know, you're a man, but you're really, uh, to quote one of Stonewall's actors, expanding the bandwidth of being a lesbian, where actually you're a man with a beard who wears a frock who's married to a woman. I mean, it, it's like click your heels and you're in Kansas. You know, this it's so individualistic and narcissistic and crucially subjective. And it's not about the fundamental change which needs to be achieved in society, which is the way in which you learn to make allegiances and alliances with other people with whom you may not agree on everything, but with whom you can agree on certain things. And together with them, you create a different world in which people have a, altogether a greater lot of freedom. So I find that, I find, the, I find this, as you say, the pride thing sort of, I recognise that exhilaration of the first time you have that first gay kiss in a club surrounded by other gay people. There's something absolutely exhilarating about that. And I get that. And occasionally one can find that again at Pride, that you find it with your book with a bunch of mates and there's just something very, very freeing about it. So I really get the value of that. But actually the pretense that it's any more than a party in which people are celebrating their own individual pleasure, it seems to me, um, is being lost and that actually it's being subsumed, campaigning around these issues is being subsumed in notions of individual pleasure and worst of all in this idea the individual self-determination click your heels and you're in Kansas I find that I find that absolutely infuriating well that's why a lot of the feminists have come out of the woodwork in recent years over this 
uh, I started writing about this in 2012-13, and I had women writing me. Some of them were well-known journalists. Some were professors. I was rather shocked by the number of professors writing me because I thought, aren't you protected by tenure? But they were all saying the same thing. I read your piece, but I'm afraid to speak out. Mm. I had a lot of gay men write me too. And I was taken aback by the lack of voices coming out to support. Remember the infamous January 2013 observer cancellation of Julie Birchill? That's when it all fell into place for me. That was my watershed moment when Mm -hmm. I was like, holy cow, this is much worse than what was described to me. Because Pride the year before is when I found out how far things had gone in the UK, especially. Uh, I had stepped away from it because of my own work. And I had no longer been involved in queer theory for many years because I thought it was already heading that way. And I was a bit concerned. But women have been speaking out because as you mentioned, being told as a lesbian to have sex or that you should want to have sex with a man in a frock with or without a beard, being told, but it's a female penis is some of the most homophobic Mm. crap I've ever come across in my life. And I didn't believe it at first when I heard about the cotton ceiling. I was still saying, no, this cannot be true. I was shaking Mm. my head saying, no, no, no. And I did research, I spoke to people. I've met so many women over the past few years who've left dating apps entirely because they say there are more men on these spaces than women. Yes, and one of the things that's a real head scratcher about this is that how did it happen that good intelligent people kind of fell for this? There's been a sort of, there's been a capture you know, and you, you see it at the moment, and, and, and it's one of the, the reasons why people are getting incredibly sceptical about Stonewall in the UK. You know, that if you start saying, to be inclusive, we should stop using the word mother and using the concept people who have children. Now, motherhood and mother is essential to so many women as, as a part of, an, a, you know, a determining part of their identity not as a limiting part of that, not as, you know, women go back to the kitchen and just have children, but as a powerful uh, 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 part of who, who they are and what they do in the world. And, that, and yet, somehow, organisations of all kinds and senior, you know, people in these organisations somehow fell for the idea that we should start, that we should have a go along with Stonewall, that this was a a kind of this was a sign that we were progressive or whatever or whatever and yet when you when you you just strip it back you think what do you 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 know a senior Labour politician went on the television not so recently in the UK and said children are born without a sex oh, I remember you think, that <laughs> you think you, you just think sorry I mean are you so silly you cannot actually distinguish between biological sex and the gender roles that are built on that. I mean, are you really that dim that you can't grasp something that is very, very simple? So what I think is peculiar is the way in which people have been, in a sense, conned into supporting this. I think there's an element, actually, on the right, I think there was an element of, we got it so wrong with the gays, we'd better not get it wrong again. And so we'll kind of go along with Stonewall. And I think Stonewall was selling a pup I think Stonewall was selling one thing 
but actually doing another. In other words, they were saying, join the diversity champion scheme or whatever it's called, uh, the workplace equality scheme or whatever, join this and you know, you'll be able to signal to inside, you know, the staff you've already got and then to external potential staff, you'll be able to signal that you're basically a jolly nice organization and uh, you know, you'll all be free and happy to come and work for us. And that was fine. And companies thought, well, that's a jolly good idea. We'll do that because we'll widen the talent pool and uh, this is a good thing. And I think it is a good thing. I think that's absolutely fine. But then they discovered that actually, somebody beavering away in the equality and diversity department is then busily writing a, 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 a policy statement that says we've got to change the language to be inclusive but actually Stonewall starts to mark up people in their equality index score where you get more scores for saying that you're going to score people parents who birth or parents who have children or whatever the hell the phrase is as opposed to mother and you get marked up for that so you've got this thing happening on two levels you've got kind of the headline and the body of the copy if you like and but what I find extraordinary is that people go along with it and I have you know a number of trans friends who 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 are also scratching their heads going I mean, one of them said a brilliant thing. I won't use her real name because it's up to her to talk for herself. But if I tell you the story that she, she and I did a panel together and before she was who she is now, um, her name was Jack. And in answer to a question, she said to the audience, who were this woman in the audience asked a question saying, you know, I'm a bit confused by all this. She said, look, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Jack's bravery. She said, Jack is part of me. I carry him with me everywhere I go. Saying that opened the discussion for that audience. I mean, they, you could feel people visibly relaxing and going, oh, where we get it now. You know, that's really interesting. Tell us more about that story. And the richness of that transition is very powerful for people. So I find it peculiar. And I think a lot of trans people find it peculiar that actually what's not being celebrated is the fact that they are trans. The idea that you don't say, no, no, I'm not trans woman, I'm a woman. People just go, well, you're not. And yet somehow people feel frightened about speaking out about that reality, and less so now. I mean, I think we're getting to the stage where people are realizing that actually we've got to stand up for some sort of factual basis to have this discussion. But do you know what I mean? The richness of the difference of the stories between women and trans women, that is an exciting basis on which to make some common calls. But if you just say, well, actually, we're all the same, we're all women, then actually you run up into a whole set of problems in relation to the demands of women, the history of women, and so on and so forth. And it's the, it's the refusal to acknowledge that those are real material contradictions that I think has run Stonewall and other organisations into such difficulty, but at the same time, it's so peculiar that people have been prepared to go along with it. We're seeing that repeated within left of centre media, like The Guardian, The Independent, that publish stories about internal gender identity, about cis-centrism, about transphobia. Everything's transphobic such, to such a degree that one begins to think that nothing is transphobic. When we know, okay, there is discrimination towards people who identify as transgender, but at the same time, saying that biological reality must be discussed and must be on the table is is not transphobic or right. as you pointed out motherhood why are we running around calling 51 percent of society uterus havers cervix havers these are deeply offensive terms and i'm sure you've noticed 
that men are not being called prostate havers or front noodlers or whatnot. We're, <laughs> we're getting a language that's entirely misogynistic and directed at women. And I'm, I'm very concerned that so many parts of our societies do not see the misogyny. They just think the women out campaigning, as you've seen this in The Guardian and, and Independent, they love to run the lie that people who are against, they always say, against transgender people or want to erase their lives or take them from the face of the earth, that we are all a bunch of right-wing, Bible-thumping morons, which couldn't be further from the truth because you were at the Women's Place meeting in Brighton during the labor conference two years ago. Mm. And you've, you've seen a lot of this unroll out in front of you, even if maybe you weren't as outspoken at certain points. Why are people not seeing the misogyny within this? Because it's not yes. being levelly angled at gay men until recently. It is very interesting, isn't it? The, 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 I think the blindness is interesting. It took me, as you say, some time to, um, you know, I work in diversity and, you know, it is the truth that when I do certain, uh, I do public events for organisations, it happens particularly in the NHS, um, there is a group of people who always try to cancel me or get me cancelled, you know? Uh, so I was a bit cautious. And then I thought, actually, hang on a second. Hang on a second. The very basis of my work, the very basis of my approach to uh, this whole area, and it's the basis of the book that I've just written, which is called The Power of Difference, is precisely that. It's the power of difference. And that it's the, it's the recognition, the valuing and the combining of difference, which is, which is the true diversity. So the idea that you can collapse womanhood into this clan's pocket of a category that includes some men as well seems to me to be completely a complete failure to celebrate the difference which is where the richness lies what is as i say head scratching is why at that women's place meeting there we were inside uh, with 150 people i suppose i can't remember how many but that sort of number of people and outside was a group of maybe 20 or 30 people who banged and you know on the windows and tried to disrupt the meeting on the basis that this organization was a hate organization and you think what is going I really I really I find this so difficult Julie what is in the minds of those young people and I, I actually have said subsequently I go out and I ask them because that time I should have gone out and asked them rather than stayed in the meeting in a way. I mean, I love staying in the meeting because I loved hearing the people, the women speak. But, but I, I, want, I wanted to go out and say, look, what are you trying to achieve? What do you think you're doing by trying to disrupt a meeting of hundreds of women talking about women's experience? What are you doing here? You know, and I, I find it really genuinely puzzling. And I can only put it down to this idea that, that actually what they think they're doing is that there's this idea that if you, if you deny people the individual right to say who they are, this, this, you know, that it's all about this notion that you have an identity and it's yours to control and it's yours to control. And the very, you know, the refusal to accept that they characterize as being hatred because the very basis of their politics is, is essentially individualistic and narcissistic. It's not to do with group rights or 
collective health of society. It's not to do with any of that. It is merely to do with the notion of self-determination. And so if you stand up and say, actually, you don't have the right to do exactly what you want. And if you do do exactly what you want, it's got consequences and implications. At that point, they, they, they come down on you. And actually the bullying that goes on in particularly universities, I think, but also across organizations and like you, I get many, many, many um, letters and emails for people telling me what's happening to them and they can't speak out. That is not inclusion. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time saying to people and working with managers as on how to create spaces that are safe for disagreement, not safe from disagreement. You know, how do you how do you create a space where people can bring, I mean, this phrase, bring your whole self to work? Well, if you're gender critical and you want to assert the, the simple fact of, of the biological binary, you should be able to do that at work and without being castigated and, um, um, you know, uh, 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 in some way discriminated against. Yeah, or losing your job is in the case of Maya Forstater. Yes, I mean, you know, that sort of bullying and harassment is is unacceptable. I think. Well, I said, I think there are two, but there are two things here. Aren't there? There's the belief system, which is one set of things. So I think we could talk about the belief system and gender ideology and why it is this incredibly individualistic approach to identity that simply seems to think that language, if you change language, you in a sense you do change reality. That's the sort of Judith Butler queer theory approach, isn't it? That literally changing language is changing reality. So there's the theoretical stuff that goes on there. But beside that is this other very authoritarian style of politics, which says that if you disagree with me, you are an opponent, you are the enemy, you are an ist, you are phobic. Now that is not by any manner of means confined to this area of politics. That is something, it seems to me, which has developed since the 80s, since the shock jocks were the most prime examples in the early 80s. There's a level of sectarianism in their narrative. And what they were doing was instead of arguing with what people were saying, they were delegitimizing the person who was saying it. And so what you find here is that, that it's not what you say, it's who you are. So you get these ridiculous ideas that only certain people can have certain opinions on certain subjects you know these kind of ideas now that what, what that does again is, is that individualism this notion of personal identity but as a style of politics what it gets turned into is not so much um, the news bubbles these are the echo chambers these are the places where um, you hear opposing views but what, you, what happens when you hear opposing views is that they reinforce you in your view. In other words, there's no dialogue. There's merely people shouting at each other in a room and delegitimizing each other rather than arguing about the stuff of what, um, what they believe and what they think. And that's a style of politics, which I think you see across the range of politics. You see it in, in, in Democrat and Republican politics and states. You see it here in, in the UK, I mean, in the Labour Party. I've just thrown away a T-shirt, which I used to have, but it was, a, it was funny when it was there, but it said, never, I've never, never kissed a Tory. I think, okay, that is funny. But, and I actually altered it to never <laughs> kiss, never, and I also said never knowingly kissed a Tory. But the point about, 
the, thing, the thing that I don't approve of, and the reason I got rid of the T-shirt is a Tory. A Tory. What is a Tory? If what you do is characterise those people who did not vote for your party at the last election as Tories, in other words, other, different, then what you're saying is the next election comes around, you're saying, well, there's a bunch of Tories there. We don't want Tory votes. You go, Hang on a second. The way you win elections is to convince people that what you're offering is the right platform for the country. So you want people who previously voted for the other lot to vote for you. In other words, there are very few people who are captured by the single identity. And it happened with Brexit. All Brexiteers are racist. You're racists. No, we didn't win the argument, those of us who wanted to stay in the EU. And part of the reason we didn't win the argument was we weren't prepared to have real conversations with people about their real anxieties. We would much rather simply impose on them. So this idea that there's a Tory, a racist, all these things, these are characterising people as morally bad for the opinions they hold. But rather than argue with what they think, we cast them out by stereotyping them. And that's dangerous, and that's why I threw away the T-shirt. Oh, that's a great story. I have to say, after I voted to remain, I was a bit floored by the reactions of my fellow Remainers, who seem to have prolonged, even to the present day, <laughs> internet tantrums over the vote. And yeah. I was thinking, wait, we lost. Why can't we lose honorably? Why can't we now work with the situation? And why do we have to continue the myth that everyone who voted to leave was a flaming racist? Because we see that kind of paradigm cut, paste, and copied onto the trans debate. I'm sure you've seen it. If you disagree with the trans issues, any number of them, you'll be called a racist. But look at this ridiculous idea of, of the wrong side of history. What? I mean, you know, there is that famous, I don't know whether it's actually apocryphal or true, but the famous question when Chow Enlai, the, the Chinese leader, was asked about whether he thought the French Revolution had been a success. And he said, well, it's a bit early to tell. Now, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a rather brilliant idea, but you know, the, the idea that, that in the moment you can cast yourself as having the moral virtue of being, quote, on the right side of history. This is the most, A, it's the most extraordinarily arrogant thing to say. Um, but secondly, it does cast the idea that you, that only your argument has moral virtue. And, you know, that is exactly what's happening in this style of politics. And as I say, it happens in this question of the trans debate, but it also happens if you look at, for instance, critical race theory. Now, you know, Black Lives Matter is an extraordinary movement, but you don't have to join Black Lives Matter. That, but joining Black Lives Matter is not the only way to be anti-racist. Um, you know, you could be anti-racist and yet have a different view of the significance and role of race in the world. So Ibram Kendi, you know, the great American writer, um, you know, I, I, I read his stuff and think, well, I profoundly um, uh, disagree with, with many of his things. Now, people say, well, you're not black. You're not entitled to comment on that, so on and so forth. Well, I think I am entitled to take a view about a theoretical approach that he is taking to the idea that America is founded in order to 
prolonged slavery that, you know, that I'm, I'm characterizing his view, but that was the 1619 project in the New York Times, you know, the idea that actually, you know, the Americans split with Britain because Britain wanted to abolish slavery. Now that's, you know, that's a profoundly contentious idea. And I'm not saying it's not an interesting idea. It's a really interesting idea, but the point is, is it true? Is there an argument about it? Yes, there is. There's a fantastically good argument to be had about the foundation of America. What is it that creates and prolongs racism in America and Britain? Blah, blah, blah. These are all fantastic arguments. But the key thing is, they've got to be arguments that were had, you know? In other words, we've got to go on having this intellectual inquiry. What we can't do is say, if you don't support Black Lives Matter's ideology, you're not fighting racism. And worse than that, if you don't support Black Lives Matter, you are racist. This is clearly a nonsense. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Just like your argument against having an internal gender, hence your cis, it's everyone's guilty by birth of being white, of being cis. And that then turns the tables on any kind of honest discussion we can have about what is sexism or racism or the structures or the 1619 Project, which was very much critiqued by many a, a Black American scholar as well, well, Adolf Reed being, being, you know, one of the most distinguished black American, well, one of the most distinguished American historians who actually absolutely. is also black, as an example. Absolutely, absolutely. And he's been on record this past year because he was deplatformed mm. from the DSA in Philadelphia, New York. What's the DSA? Is it's the Democrat Socialists of America. And right. he was criticizing something that they had put out right around the beginning of coronavirus, stating that black people are biologically more prone to this. There is no data for that. There are sociological reasons why the COVID-19 virus hurts certain communities more than others, but it had to do with mm. the number of mm. bodies per square meter of housing, demographics that are linked to economics, mm. not ethnicity. And he was trashed for that. Well, one of the dangers of this stuff though is that it's so essentialist. You know, your essential gender identity you know, then there's this idea that, 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 that as you say, some, drawing a conclusion that something, there's something, there's a kind of genetic basis or biological basis for race. And I mean, this is, this is, this is really shattering the idea that we can go back to a position where um, we can argue that, that, that actually race is, there's a, there's a wonderful comment, which, which uh, uh, I can't remember his name, a brilliant black educator um, in a talk that I saw, he made this brilliant comment. He said, we're, the thing is we're taught that race is important, uh, that race exists, but it doesn't matter. In other words, you know, you don't see race, you know, you must, you must see all people the same. He said, actually the opposite's true. Race doesn't exist, but it's really important. In other words, you know, race is a nonsense. And if you if you look at the, the 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 kind of genetic basis for race, you know, there isn't any. I mean, there's more DNA difference and genetic difference across Africa than there is 
you know, between, between white and black people. You know what I mean? I mean, there's no, there's no biological genetic basis for race. It's an entirely different thing, but there's a social concept. It's absolutely fundamentally important to the way in which people are living their lives in countries where there are black and white people. It's very different, I think. My husband's Nigerian, so his attitude towards race is, is really interesting because he comes from a black country. So, you know, he has a rather different view. And so his perspective on living in Britain is very interesting. Um, but what I would say is, too, that, that the important thing about this stuff is that whilst there's an absolute value in people's personal experience, if you think back to Me Too, the fundamental thing about that was, and it was a great slogan to start with, which was that women must be heard. Because that was the problem. Sexual assaults were happening, harassment was happening, but women weren't being heard. No, when women were saying that happened to me, people were saying, well, yeah, okay. And so they weren't reporting it, they weren't bringing it forward, and when they were, they weren't being listened to. But then the slogan started to just shade over, and you'll notice it suddenly became, Women, all women must be believed. Well, no, you cannot possibly run a system on allegation, on, you know, accusations. What you have to have is listening to people's personal experience. So I always say you have to listen to hear, not listen to respond. And you have to honor that personal experience, but then you have to have a trusted process through which we go to resolve what we do about it. Be that the courts, in an organisation, be that the HR process or whatever it is. And what people do, I think, is confuse those two things. They allow the subjective to be judge and jury, whereas actually the subjective is the case for the prosecution. The result is then what happens with the jury and the judge. Do you see what I mean? Well, there was a lot of ire directed towards Germaine Greer when she said rape is one of those crimes that's very hard to prove in most cases, not all. And she said, we need a different way of addressing this, a different system. And she enraged many a feminist for saying, we can't identify through our oppression uniquely. I was raped, but that does not make me. And we have to move beyond that. And you see a lot of this today on Twitter, believe all victims. Well, this is the problem that the very same feminists are facing towards the transgender lobby. Many people, in fact, have underscored to me that the trans movement came about because of very hardcore feminist politics, which wanted to make the woman, the female, as the ultimate victim. When we have one victim narrative that's at the center of attention, then we shouldn't be surprised when other victim narratives emerge. Hence, we have now the trans lobby that calls women like myself, cis, and we are de facto oppressors of, let's say, white men, simply mm. because they have a skirt on, which is ironic in a historical sense, troubling, however, if you're simply saying that sex is both immutable and humans are sexually dimorphic. But then mm. let's get back to the days of the 90s, when AIDS was after Crixivan, 96, then AIDS became treatable like diabetes, and that's when I started to see in New York, the T being added to, I love what you said earlier, LGB, blah, blah, blah. I think we should have an organization called LGB, blah, blah, blah. Well, one of the things I, I often say is this, that the, the, the LGBTQIA+, LGBT, I say what they've done with that is they've taken one of the great passions of my life, which is lesbian and gay uh, equality and turned it into a slightly secure password on the internet. 
<laughs> and it becomes really hard for someone to look at what's happening today and see that there's any oppression. You have people who are heterosexual, not necessarily homophobic, but certainly they see what's going on. They say, see, the pendulum swung too far. And they're completely unaware that gay and lesbian youth, for instance, in secondary schools still face bullying. Now, what happened that Stonewall abandoned that demographic for the T? And getting back to your original comment as well, why should a gay and lesbian organization be helping out people who identify as something that's sort of not related at all? And I know you might make the argument that it is, but I'll tell you something. I get this on the internet. People will say, well, there are transgender people who are homosexual. Okay, I'll run with that. But then let's deal with just LGBT organizations as just that. Why is it that Stonewall embraced the T, but they wouldn't have embraced, let's say, a local golfing organization that wanted an office space. What was it about T that pushed Stonewall to not only want to embrace it, but make it its primary mandate? What are your thoughts? Well, it's it's interesting, isn't it? In 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 um, twenty fourteen, um, when there was a change in chief executive. 2013 or 14 of, of Stonewall. That was the point at which the legislative agenda which Stonewall had set out to tackle was pretty much done. There was some outlying um, unresolved issues, particularly which has subsequently been resolved, um, equal marriage in Northern Ireland, and there was some issues around pensions and so on and so forth, but primarily uh, the, the agenda had been won. And at that point, Stonewall needed to go through a strategic pivot. At the time, um, three people I knew applied for that job and each one of them rung me to ask advice. And uh, they said, what would you put forward as the strategy? And I knew what I would put forward, but of course I said to them, well, what would you put forward? And each one of them quite independently told me that what they thought Stonewall should do, and by the way, this is exactly what was in my mind as well, was that Stonewall should have devolved locally in the UK and started to build alliances at a local city town level that we had built at a national level. So in other words, when that row broke out in Birmingham a couple of years ago about the teaching of uh, lesbian and gay sex education in schools, but also it's a programme called No Outsiders, but it also has within it a kind of gender ideology thrust, which does give, give, give kids the, the teaching that actually they might be, you know, the opposite sex and so on and so forth, and they might really be a boy or a girl if they're, they're, uh, uh, and so on. Um, so there was a row that broke out. And you had, you know, Muslim parents and you had the gay and other educators saying, you know, sort of opposing each other outside the school. And it was very bitter. But what was interesting was the posters that the parents had said things like my children, my, you know, my, my children don't, my parental rights. It was interesting this. It didn't say God hates fags. You know, as the famous, what's his name, Westbrook Baptist, you know, church uh, uh, slogans <laughs> did it was my i'm the parent i've got the right of the children and effectively also what you looked at in this thing was you had a bunch of middle class teachers and others and a bunch of working class muslim telling a bunch of working class muslim parents what they should think now what stonewall should and could have been able to do it seems to me is it could have been able to mediate 
it could have been able to sit down with those parents and say, look, we don't want you to think that homosexuality is good, bad or indifferent. But what we do want you to do is agree with us that actually in equipping your kids with a sense of what the world is, rather than what you want, is going to help your children and the kids in the school. And by the way, that would help any kids in that community who are Muslim, who are growing up gay. But Stonewall was nowhere to be seen. So what I'm saying is at that point, the strategic pivot, in my view, should have been, right, we've done the national legislation. Now what we're going to do is build local alliances with businesses, NHS, schools, da 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 da. So we've got the networks that can spring into action when these tensions arise and we can help to make life better for gay kids or gay people who work in, in, in businesses or the hospitals. But they didn't do that. They, they, what they did was they pivoted towards uh, uh, not just supporting people who wanted to battle for trans rights, but they pivoted and, in, and, and completely subsumed the organization in this ideology, which said two big things. One is this entirely subjective notion that if you change the language, you can change the world. Hence, cervix have a rather than woman. Uh, and all that. And the second thing was that actually we brook no disagreement on this. So if you're a trans person who disagrees about this, we will actively keep you off our trans advisory group. And I'm not saying that after the, uh, that is based on a series of real examples. So you had two things. They became exclusionary of any other views. And the view that they were putting was not a, a, a view based in the idea of the rights of lesbians, gays and trans people, but it was an ideological view of what they wanted the world to look like, which did exclude certain people, particularly women. Every day I wake up, there are more and more organizations, public bodies that are stepping away completely, getting off the diversity champions list. The list is getting quite long now of organizations that are doing this. And in your piece last Monday for the Daily Mail, you wrote about this. You said, not according to Stonewall, an organization which on its mass had claims to want to create a world in which everyone is free to be, but in reality has become single-mindedly focused on a particular and by no means universally accepted approach to trans rights. Free to be only if you agree with Stonewall. So we're seeing now many organizations, oh, the government as well has spoken out about this, questioning even using public funds. 2,500 quid for bad legal advice, according to the Reindorf report. So I worry here, this is my thought, where NGOs are allowed to get a seat at the table to inform public policy. Where were the women being asked at the table back in 2004 mm -hmm. for the Gender Recognition Act? The GRA went in and not a woman or a woman's organization was asked to be at the table. Now you have years later, Stonewall having a program that businesses and organizations pay heavily for. The legal advice is questionable. I think many are correct in saying it's inaccurate in terms of the misinterpretation of the Equality Act. And you have businesses that it reminds me of that scene from Cinema Paradiso where the priest rings the bell every time there's a slightly uncomfortable scene of kissing or any kind of sexual innuendo. And he rings the bell so that the person in the back room can cut that scene out of the film. So it's prepared to be shown for the local village. 
<laughs> Why has Stonewall been given that bell to ring to decide an ethos of what is or is not acceptable? What is or is not homophobic or transphobic? These are questions I have. I'm concerned that women are being threatened at their place of work. We know already of people who've had to be assigned a bodyguard in the case of Selena Todd to go to her lectures. The cases of many women having lost job contracts, their jobs. I know of someone who's lost his housing who, for hosting an event. Why is it that these organizations have so much power and government bodies seem to not be vetting to what degree unelected bodies, because they're not elected, are being allowed to shape policy? Stonewall built some credibility. And I, I can remember when I was still involved, which is you know a long time ago, um, I remember the first time that Stonewall was quoted in Parliament as an authoritative source of information about lesbian and gay issues. And that was a real moment. That was one of the things that was strategic. It, that was one of our strategic goals was to get to gain that kind of credibility. So people believed what we had to say um, about lesbian and gay issues. They are now squandering that credibility. So part of it, I think, is that Stonewall built up this credibility over many, many years as a source of good advice about how to support lesbian and gay employees, good advice about how to deal with these issues on campus or in your organisation. What has happened, though, is that that advice has turned bad. In other words, they are using the credibility they previously had and now to give advice which is not credible. And unfortunately, the influence they've been given has not caught up with that. In other words, it's only now catching up with the fact that the credibility is now false. So it, there's been a lag in that. I don't think there's a problem with seeking specialist advice. So if you're an organization and you want to think about really effective ways of creating the space in your organization for black people and brown people to ascend up the organization to the uh, extent of their own ambition. If you, if you want that, well, you seek advice from people. And there are people who are, some of whom are black and brown, some of whom are white, but who have gathered together sufficient basis of research and experience that they can help you determine really good policies. I do that the whole time. People ask me into their organisations to help them build staff networks, to help them build talent pipelines, to help them unblock the blocks that genuinely exist for certain groups of people in the organisation. So I would be, you know, cutting my own throat if I said that I didn't think that you could go and seek reliable and dependent outside advice from specialists in the area. And you do that in all sorts of ways. So I have no problem with that. <laughs> the danger comes when the advice is not reliable. So I would say that when I advise an organisation, I am really clear. I have done the research. I have looked at the experience of clients. And what I'm doing is giving people the best advice possible based on the facts of the situation. What Stonewall is now doing is giving advice that is not based on the facts of the situation. It is not, for instance, giving correct advice around the Equality Act. And it claims that there are judgments on the Equality Act subsequently that have enabled that, that actually support their advice. But the classic one is that Stonewall says that as of right, 
all people who self-identify as trans have of right the ability to be in women's spaces, that you must, you must have gender-free lose, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That is, that is, no, that, as, as, the, as the report said on Essex University, that's how they want the law to be, but it's not how the law is. There are specific exemptions in the law which enable organisations for proportionate and legitimate reasons to exclude trans people from women's only, trans women from women's only spaces. Now, the rights and wrongs of that we can debate. How you do it in particular circumstances we can debate, but the point is it's not as of right, whereas Stonewall is telling people, in order to be an inclusive organisation, you must do this because this is what the law says. Now that's simply wrong. So whatever you may think about what you'd like the law to be, if you're in a position of responsibility as they are, you've got to give advice as the law as is, not as you want it to be. So those kind of flaws are undermining the credibility of an organisation. And I think it's perfectly reasonable for, for big organisations to rely on lobby groups and so on and so forth for good advice. But it must be good advice and it must be credible advice. And that's where Stanmore's gone wrong, is they've mistaken their lobbying, their desire to change the law with the advice they give to people about the law as it is now. There seems to be some degree of uncertainty about the future of some of these organizations, like Mermaids as well, given that now there's a challenge towards LGB Alliance's charity status. What is that about? It looks on the one hand like sour grapes, and on the other, it looks like they're worried about competing economic interests. Well, it is interesting that they say in their submission that actually mermaids are saying that their potential funding is threatened by another organization, you know, competing for the same money. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's an absolute no-no. I mean, you know, you, people give to the charity that they want to give to, and that's up to the charity to make the case to potential donors as well as they can and get the money. I think this is, a, I don't think this is a, 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 a um, a legal case with any any basis i think this is vexatious i think this is harassment i think what they're trying to do is they're trying to simply stop they're trying to put barriers in the way of the lgb alliance doing anything uh, that it wants to do i think that it's literally a form of harassment they're trying to take up the time and money of the lgb alliance um, because for ideological reasons, they've, they've got themselves in the position of thinking that there's, there's something illegitimate about lesbians and gays organising on their own. Well, there clearly isn't anything legitimate. And, you know, the idea that, that one group of charities is attacking the right of another charity to exist feels to me that that is not within the code of conduct of a charity. And I would, I think it's foolish of them because if they, if, if the appeal judges end up saying that the LGB Alliance is in some way um, not, a not observing of charity status because of the ideology or the politics that it has, well, be very careful about the cases that then come towards mermaids and towards Stonewall saying, actually the same rules now apply to you. So you will not be able to be political, to lobby, to this, that and the other. So I think they should be very careful about what they wish for. I think it's vexatious really, it's just a form of harassment. Um, to, to, to just try and yet again create um, hostility towards the Lesbian Gay Alliance. 
Well, it seems so because Mermaids has absolutely nothing in common with LGBT Alliance. In fact, when it formed, Mermaids was quite outspoken about how they stood at the opposite poles of arguments. Hence, how would LGBT Alliance threaten Mermaids? I mean, you know, it's a bit like saying what, you know, I don't know, but there must be, there must be um, atheist and non-religious and humanist charities. I assume there are. I mean, I don't know whether the Humanist Association is a charity, probably something, but there must be those kind of charities. And also you've got a load of religious charities. Well, you know, we don't believe in God, you believe in God. Well, that's the opposite end of the argument, isn't it really? Um, so it seems to me a ludicrous argument, a really ludicrous argument. And also charities are not set up uh, on behalf of everybody. It's perfectly legitimate to set up a charity which which uh, seeks to educate the public or to uh, uh, argue for human rights on the basis of a particular group of people. You don't have to argue for everybody. You know, you can focus on a particular section of the population. So I don't see really how, how where the case is, I must admit. So I can only assume that it is. And it's led by this curious man, Jollyon, I don't know how you pronounce his name, Jollyon Morm, I think. You know, this is this is a person who spends his time basking in the reflected glory of the good law project, as it's called. Julian Morm is a person who makes his money helping uh, wealthy individuals avoid tax. Now, that's something which many of us think is 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 uh, not good law. We think that's bad law. And as you can see at the summit at the moment, there's an attempt uh, by the rich countries to ensure that big organizations pay lots of tax well he spends his time trying to help people not do that um so uh, i think it's questionable really well there are many people out there who believe that a lot of what is pushing the gender ideology lobby is completely market capitalist based not only pharmaceutical companies but you have all these professional quasi professional fields popping up from voice coaches to how to dress like a woman and it's quite really? ironic yeah. to me that no one's seeing the misogyny in this when you see things being written about how even in police guidance to treat the suspect as a woman. What does that mean? I don't want to be treated as a woman. I thought that was the whole idea of the suffragist movement and women's rights movements over the past 120 years, if not more. Why is it that an organization like Stonewall that had its nose to the ground at the height of the AIDS crisis that did so much good has now pushed the most sexist tropes. This is why I don't think anyone should omit the importance of what's going on because this is really putting women back in our place. This whole movement that says, I feel like a woman, you are a cis woman, you are oppressing me by saying that sex is twofold, male or female. There's a whole rainbow in there. Even the trope of rainbow has become perverted in all this, as has, think back to the mid-90s, when there was a huge debate in the US and the UK about whether one was gay by choice or born this way. And the born this way was the slippery slope of getting people to believe that they can't help it, so we'll have to accept them. It's not like they're they're hedonists and they can change their behavior, but they can't, they're like diabetics. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, well, there's two or three strands in that. One is that 
th there are different agendas in here that are criticizing Stonewall. There is the, the there's the, what you might term the sort of evangelical or the more right-wing Christian agenda. And that has an agenda which very much comes from um, a very traditional view of marriage and the family and the role of women. And, but nonetheless is, is, is visceral in its objection to the idea, I think of trans, transsexualism, transgenderism, whatever you call it, in and of itself. So you, you have the sort of that end of it. And I think that's much more of a dog whistle approach to these things. In other words, I think the Republicans in America who, um, I think there's genuine concern, but I also think there's an element of dog whistle in this, back to section 28. There's an element of using the trans debate uh, as a way of rallying core support. But the trans organizations like Stonewall have enabled that to happen because they have made such a parody because that's the other elision that's happened, is they've taken a simple, sensible campaign for rights and anti-discrimination, and they have embraced this broad ideology, which is precisely, um, which precisely undermines the ability to make a, a, a wide range of alliances and get popular support for that position of trans rights or the protection from discrimination for trans people. If you get to the absurdity of saying somebody exposes themselves in a car park whilst wearing a dress and then gets taken to court, which as which happened recently in the UK, and then in court because this person identifies as a woman, despite the fact that they're arrested for showing their penis in a, in a car park, has to be referred to as she in the court, you are not going to gain public support. I mean, people are going to see that for the, for the ludicrousness that it is. So what they're doing, unfortunately, is undermining the ability of the country to embrace a broadly supportive position for trans people. The other thing that's unfortunate, though, is that those individual examples are also then, and this happened before, they are being used, these, this egregious behaviour is being used to tarnish all those people who may fall under that broad definition of trans. So the absurdities are now influencing people's ability to focus on some basic, you know, decency, which they could show to trans people. That is being, that is being um, undermined and, and, and uh, belittled by the extreme examples of the, the, peop the people, who, the men who are identifying as women in order to get into women's prisons, the Karen Whites of the world. You know, these examples are now being applied to the whole of people because actually Stonewall refuses to discuss the extreme examples and therefore the thing gets lumped together. And, you know, they refuse, for instance, to accept that actually, if you're going to open a loophole which enables male-bodied people to be in female spaces, if that's going to be possible, i.e. that self-ID as a basis for law would make that possible, nay mandatory, if that is the case, that does raise potential safeguarding issues. That is not to say that all trans people are those men who want to inveigle women's spaces for malign reasons. But it's the same with child safeguarding. We don't have child safeguarding because all adults are paedophiles. We have child safeguarding because some of them are. So until you actually have this proper discussion based on fact and data and reality, 
If you don't have that discussion, we can't get to the stage where women will feel perfectly comfortable around the issue of trans people, trans women in female spaces, changing rooms or whatever, because they've had the chance to discuss it and they're confident of the safeguarding that sits around it. But if you can't discuss those issues, you'll never get to that position of comfort and anti-discrimination, which is what these people want. They want complete capitulation. They don't want discussion. I don't see a lot of men saying, well, I have to come in your loo because I'm not a rapist. I know that most men aren't rapists. That's not the point of having separate loos. It's not the point of having separate changing rooms. And most reasonable men know this. What has happened that you, we had so many of our fellow gay men and women climb on board this ideology for years. Now, in recent months, many have been outspoken saying, I used to be very pro-trans rights, I still am, but this has gone too far. What shifted in the past year or two? Well, I think it's becoming aware of the, uh, it's becoming aware of this shift from the, a simple case around rights and fighting discrimination, which is what Stonewall, that's its function in life. It's supposed to fight discrimination. Discrimination is now characterized by this ideology and the requirement that you wholeheartedly submit to that ideology. And that's best put by cervix havers versus mothers, you know, chest feeders versus breast milk and so on. So it, that's what people have become aware of. They've become, they've, they've realized that the, tro uh, the, they've realized the Trojan horse. They've now seen that what they thought was supporting fairness for a group of people who were discriminated against unfairly, they have now seen that as a Trojan horse for this whole ideology. And they reject the ideology because they realize that the impact that it has on their own self-definition and the lives that they lead. So, and, and most importantly, look, underneath all of this, here's the biggest problem, is that if you insist on trying to categorize people who disagree with biological reality as the enemy and as phobic, and if you insist that they buy into an ideology which they, to which they do not subscribe, you will not build that broad alliance of people in support of fairness and anti-discrimination towards trans people that ultimately should be your aim. In other words, they're undermining their own campaigning objectives and Stonewall should not be losing credibility. It should be working out how to build credibility with the widest range of people because that's how it always achieved success in the past. Many feminists are saying that a lot of what has been going on with the pushing on women's rights has more to do with this lobby that's insisting that people concede their ideology by parroting it. It's not only about men participating on women's sports teams or against women in say running competitions, etc. It's about being accepted by virtue of fiat, where in the past, as you know, drag queens were very big in bars in the 90s and 80s, people would say she to refer to their friend who's a drag queen out of camaraderie, but not out of any real belief that that was an actual female. What has shifted, do you think, in that today, if you don't say she, you are somehow guilty of a hate crime? Well, there was, there was I mean, when I think of my interactions with gay friends is, is that the, the she was used 
ironically, properly ironically. In other words, you'd say, oh, she's thrown her toys out of the pram. You know, that would, that would be a sort of, it, it was, it was humour, it was, it, was, it was true camp. Because what camp does is camp represents something as it's not. So when we watch a drag queen, when we watch the worst kind of drag queen, what we see is imitation. When we watch the best kind of drag, Barry Humphreys as Dame Medna, Paul O'Grady as Lily Savage, it's ventriloquism. We identify with the puppeteer because the mask gives them the opportunity to say things which are not sayable in polite company. And the more outrageous the drag queen comes, the more we identify with that social transgression of the puppeteer, of the drag person inside the drag. So that becomes a social mechanism to undermine, to send up, to identify the ambiguities, to, to, to say things that are unsayable. It becomes a passport. The minute you lose that sense of irony, in other words, the minute you elide the pretense that you're a woman with an idea that you really are a woman, you lose every bit of comment about womanhood about being gay, about the man in the frock and how that can comment on masculinity and femininity, expected gender roles. All that disappears under a kind of terrible po-faced, self-identified, self-regulated, mistaken sense of your own validity. And it becomes a begging for confirmation for something that you probably know is not true, the person knows it's not true, and yet somehow there's a conspiracy around the idea that what you need to be in life is to be affirmed. Whereas what drag was, and what you know, gay men calling each other she was, was exposing, in that case, the flaw in masculinity. When they said, oh, she's, you know, when I used to say to my friends, oh, she's throwing her toys out the pram again. That was me taking the piss out of John's masculinity and his desperate attempt to maintain his masculinity while behaving like a five-year-old child and a little girl. Now, that's a comment on gender roles, you know, and it's humour and it's ambiguity. And you, you see the template in Oscar Wilde. You know, you can see the template in Noel Coward. Gay men use that as a way of sending up masculinity and of expressing emotions they weren't allowed to in real terms and so on and so forth. That's camp, you know? That's exactly what camp is about. And we've lost that sense of camp under a terrible kind of dull conformity that's demanded by this lack of humour. Thank you.